Thank you, Paul. Good morning, everyone. Nice to be here with you again. I'm sorry, I'm struggling a little bit, being a little bit blocked this morning, so excuse me if I have a few more drinks than normal. Uh, but it's great to see you. Uh, it's great to be here, and it's great to be uh, listening to God's Word together, isn't it? And uh, the question this morning is, what are you wearing? That's what Paul asks the Colossians in our passage. What are you wearing? And that's what God, I think, wants to ask us through this passage in Colossians this morning. What are you wearing? Now, the question's not intended to get us thinking about our physical wardrobe. I know you guys have all had an eye on my shirt this morning. Poor man even wanted it. He wanted to use it as a tea towel, he said. Very hurtful. <laughs> no, it's a question about our virtues. And what virtues do we have on? In the verses you looked at last week, I'm presuming, uh, Paul was reminding the Colossian Christians that when they came to know Jesus, they took off their old self and they put on something new. He held up five articles of their old, dirty, stinking, rotten clothing. Colossians 3 verse 8, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. And he says, don't keep these things in your wardrobe anymore in case you're tempted to put them back on again like that old jumper from the 70s that should have been thrown out long ago. Get rid of them, he says there in verse 8. And now in our passage today, Paul lays out on the bed these five new articles of clothing and says, wear these ones every day. Don't have to take them off to wash them or anything. Wear them every single day. So Colossians 3, verse 12 to 14. I think that's page 1184. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Five articles of clothing. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, your overcoat, if you like, or your belt that holds the whole ensemble together, put on love. Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And Paul, right at the beginning of this passage, explains the reason that they must wear these clothes is because of who they are. It's because of who they are. Um, a few years ago, my brother asked me to be his best man at his wedding. And he took me to a shop and he said, James, this is the suit you're going to be wearing. Now, there were only two people wearing that same suit at the wedding. My brother as the groom and me as the best man. My motivation for wearing the suit was because of who my brother had asked me to be, his best man. My motivation for putting on these new clothes is because of who... Jesus has made us. 
And you see it there in verse 12. These wonderful words. You are now God's chosen people. Holy and dearly loved. That's who Christ has made you. So put on his clothes that he's given you. Uh, this morning, you may not believe it, but before I came out, I went into my daughter's room and I, because she's got a full-length mirror, and I, I just had a look, make sure I was, you know, decent enough to come to Abbey Church and looked okay. Um, you're probably thinking you should have stayed there a bit longer, James. <laughs> but anyway, it's easy to look at our physical clothes and see what we're wearing, but how were the Colossians, what mirror could they look at to see if they were wearing the clothes Jesus is talking about? Um, What mirror can you look in that tells you whether you're wearing compassion or whether you're wearing kindness or humility or gentleness or patience or love? What mirror is there to see those sorts of things? And in verse 13, Paul tells us here, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. You see, the mirror in which they can see whether they're wearing the types of clothes Paul is talking about is the community of God's people in Colossae. It is the mirror of their relationships with each other. Do they bear with each other? Do they forgive one another? In the same way, you, brothers and sisters here at Abbey Church, you are each other's mirror. Your relationships with each other show what type of clothes that you have on. The way we respond to our brothers and sisters in Christ is the mirror in which we see exactly what we are wearing. So let's take a closer look at verse 13 together and and at this mirror, if you like. Bear with each other. Now this phrase, bear with each other, means to endure, to tolerate to put up with each other. It catches the sense of an acceptance that actually requires effort of will. When your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Abbey frustrate and annoy you, and you notice I said when, not if, when your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Abbey frustrate and annoy you, or you have a personality clash with one of them, do you bear with them? Do you love them so that you're able to look past those things to that person and maybe even in time come to appreciate the things that frustrate you about them? This is possible if we are intentionally putting on the clothes of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of gentleness, of patience, of love. Now, if you get easily frustrated annoyed, impatient with people in your church, then the mirror is telling you that you got the wrong clothes on. You need to get changed. Now, I love engines. Love car engines. Love pulling them apart. Love hearing them roar into life. And um, one of the things that an engine needs more than anything else is oil. And when I had started my Land Rover engine for the first time, I was sitting there at the dash waiting for that oil light to go out and ready to turn it off really quickly if it didn't. Because an engine needs oil. And when an engine has oil, 
It's actually amazing what an engine can do, isn't it? All of those parts racing, moving at such high RPM, creating such friction and heat, and yet because of the oil, they're able to work and do incre- go to incredible speeds. And in the same way, these virtues that Paul is talking about are the oil that lubricate God's people, that enable us as his people to work for God at a furious pace because we have compassion and patience and gentleness and love flowing all around us so that when the natural friction that's produced by working with each other, and and it's natural, friction will be produced, but the oil of our clothing, of our compassion, our gentleness, our kindness, our love for each other, dissipates the friction easily. It should do, so that we can do great things as God's people. Bear with each other, Paul says. But sometimes things are much worse than that, aren't they? You know, sometimes, let's be honest, we hurt each other deeply as God's people. And Paul recognizes that and he says that here. Sometimes we actually have a legitimate grievance against a brother or sister in Christ. Something that requires forgiveness. Interesting, in Matthew 18, which uh, was read to us before, the parable of the unmerciful servant, um, Jesus had actually been teaching his disciples just what Paul has been here. He's been teaching them in, uh, about the characteristics of life in the kingdom community. He says in verses 1 to 14 of chapter 18 that it's a life of humility. And in verses 15 to 20, that it's a life of honesty. And Peter, who has obviously been listening and dwelling on what Jesus has said, comes to Jesus with a very good question, doesn't he? Lord, how many times shall I forgive a brother when he sins against me? Seven times? Now, actually, I reckon Peter was expecting a nice big pat on the back from Jesus for that one. Seven times. Because that was much better than what the world did. The world didn't teach forgiveness. It taught revenge. And even the Old Testament teachers of the law, they taught that you should forgive three times. So Peter strolls up to Jesus. Seven times, Lord? Expecting Jesus to say, oh, well done, Peter. You're on the case. And, but that doesn't happen. Jesus answers... Jesus' answer hits them with this incredible reality of his kingdom. Not seven, but 70 times seven. In other words, there should be no limit to your forgiveness. To be part of his kingdom requires a whole new level of forgiveness, Peter. No doubt seeing the sort of stunned look on his disciples' faces, Jesus decides to tell them a parable to help them understand the parable that was read to us before. But before we think a little bit about that parable, I'm going to share a few things that got me really steamed up over the past couple of years. A couple of things that I read that, uh, you know, made me, my blood boil a little bit. The first one was was about bank bonuses. Just feel free to vent your anger as I read this. A mere year after the financial (laughs) 
system was bailed out with hundreds of billions of pounds from governments around the world, Goldman Sachs bankers are set to reap more loot than ever. Bonuses of 5 million to 20 million pounds per person are likely to be paid in their senior ranks. After the bank announced a profit of 2 billion pounds for the third quarter of this year. This is a, a year or so ago. As the rest of the world struggles to get back on its feet, Goldman's 31,700 employees are in line for bonuses of £428,000 each. Boy, I was angry when I read that. And then I read this around about the same time about the MP's expenses scandal. John Oakley, who works with the charity Soldiers, Sailors, Airmen and Families Association, told the story of a very old man once a prisoner of the Japanese, who needed 500 pounds to, re- to double-glaze the window in his bathroom so he could have a bath and warmth. But the money was not there to give him. Telling him was very hard, Mr. Oakley wrote, but his reaction that life was tougher on the railway and that I was not to worry about it left me weeping. Now I read of the chocolate bars, bath plugs and horse manure claimed in expenses by our MPs, and I weep again. Do injustices like these make you angry? They should. Has the temperature of your blood increased a few degrees in the last few moments? I hope so. And that's exactly, that was exactly Jesus' intention as he told this parable to Peter and the disciples. He wanted to make them angry at the great injustice of this parable. And he wanted to make them angry at the unmerciful servant. So let's join Peter, listen to Jesus, and I want you to allow yourself to seethe with anger. It's okay, you can do it. Allow yourself to seethe with anger. Seethe along with Peter. He would have been seething as well as he heard this parable. Therefore, the kingdom, this is verse 23, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, to give you an idea of the sum of money we're talking about, the entire taxation of the area of Judea in a year was 600 to 800 talents. This is 10,000 talents. What Jesus is saying is it was an unrepayable sum. It was impossible. It was millions and millions of pounds. There's no way the servant ever could have repaid this debt. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all all he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Wow. But then the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is just a couple of pounds. Jesus wants to make Peter and the disciples realize the difference between the sums here. Just a couple of pounds compared to millions and millions. Easily repayable. 
over a short period of time. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him with exactly the same words. Did you notice that? As the other servant had fallen before his master, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Are you angry? Are you angry at the injustice of the unmerciful servant? Are you outraged at the way he could treat his fellow servant after what he had just received? And Jesus helps us vent our anger by introducing the other servants in the story. These other servants see what's going on just like what we're seeing, and they go to the master, and we go with them just to see what happens when they speak to the master. And different versions have different words here uh, for this verse in verse 31. Some say that these servants were greatly distressed, that they were vehement, strongly grieved, distressed. The message says outraged at what had happened. They will not put up with this injustice. And so they go to see the master and we go along too. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. There's almost a tangible sense of expectation in verse 32 as the master calls the servant in. (laughs) We know what's going to happen now. He's going to get his just reward. The unmerciful servant is history. The master knows what's happened. And sure enough, He's called in. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt, that vast sum of yours, because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Like the end of, the great, uh, like the end of a great action film, Uh, We shout, yes, justice is done. All right, come on, victory. But then comes the hammer blow. Then comes the huge twist in the story that catches Peter and the disciples off guard and catches us off guard as well. Because the identity of the wicked servant is now revealed. If I refuse to forgive a brother or a sister in Christ who has sinned against me, then I am the unmerciful servant. It's me. It's you. If you refuse to forgive a brother or sisters in Christ, you are the unmerciful servant. In an instant, the story comes together in power. We are standing before God, our King. He is settling His accounts with us. We are shown the vast debt of sin, and it is a number beyond imagining, an amount that we could never, ever pay back, no matter how much time we were given. (coughs) And we realize that all is lost. We are helpless. Our fate is in the hands of God Almighty. And so, 
In desperation, we fall on our knees and we cry out for mercy, for forgiveness. And to our amazement, God forgives us. God cancels our vast debt of sin. Then as we turn, we see before us the person who we have refused to forgive. We sense the powerful presence of God, our King, sitting on his throne behind us. And it is then that the full force of Jesus' words hit us. I cancelled all that debt of yours. All that sin of yours. I cancelled it because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Now Peter understands why he can never refuse to forgive, no matter how many times, because it would be the injustice of all injustices. Excuse me, just a quick sip. When I was in my mid 20s, something happened that really changed my life. Firstly, I had unforgiveness in my heart. Because I had grown up in a Christian home and I'd always been a bit of a goody two-shoes, I never really felt that I understood being a sinner. I never really felt that I'd done anything that wrong. And so I prayed a dangerous prayer. I prayed that God would convict me of my sin, that I would really know and I would really understand my sin. When I was a little boy, we had moved to Australia when I was about 10. And uh, coming from England to Australia is quite a big move. And one of the things you notice straight away is that everything kills you in Australia. You know, every spider is lethal. Every snake is lethal. You know, everything. And uh, so here we are coming from England where we have, what, the adder that occasionally pokes his head out of a hole. Um, and we had to be careful, we had to check our beds, we had to check our shoes, we had to be, not walk around at night with bare feet on um, and be really careful. And one night I went to the toilet and I just sort of woke up in the middle of the night and it was pitch black and I, I guess I was too asleep to turn the light on. So I went down the hall, my bedroom was one end of the hall, the bathroom, I went right down the hall into the bathroom, went to the toilet, was about to come back and it was just one of those moments where I was struck that something wasn't right. I don't know why. I just sensed I was afraid. And so I flicked the light switch on in the hall. And there in the middle of the hall was this big black spider. Which I hadn't seen on the way down. But now I turned the light on, there it was. That's what the Holy Spirit did in my life when I prayed that prayer. He turned on the light in the hall of James Bradford's life and he showed me the big, ugly, black spiders of sin that lived there. And it broke my heart. Pride, guilty. Selfishness, guilty. The spider of jealousy, guilty. The love of material things, Guilty. Lies. Guilty. Wanting to be recognized and praised by man. Guilty. Putting myself before others. Guilty. 
Did Jesus not say that if anyone even looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart? And worst of all, these sins of mine resulted in Jesus being nailed to a cross and killed to gain my forgiveness. I finally understood how much I needed Jesus Christ. I finally understood what a sinner I was. And suddenly I was overwhelmed by the view of my sin. I'd gone from one extreme to the other. And all I could do was fall on my knees before my Lord, sobbing, saying, Mercy, mercy, God, mercy. And then as I got up off my knees, figuratively speaking, and I sensed the powerful presence of my King sitting on the throne behind me, and it is then that the full force of Jesus' words hit me. James, I cancelled all of that debt of yours because you begged me to. It's all I could do. When faced with my own sin, when realizing who I was capable of, what I had already done, done, I had no unforgiveness left to hold on to. The wonder of my own forgiveness outshone anything that anyone could ever do to me. And Jesus is teaching us in this parable that forgiveness for others begins on our knees, helpless, desperately in need of mercy for our own. And when we realize what sinners we are, how can we not forgive anybody else? How can we not? And I believe the New Testament teaches us why sometimes Christians refuse to forgive. That's the word that stood out to me in this parable in verse 30, is that the unmerciful servant refused. He refused to forgive. But how can we refuse to forgive when all that Jesus has done for us? And I think the answer is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. My father has a terrible memory. We have great fun teasing him about this. One of my favorite stories is when he went to the laundromat um, and he drove there in the car with the washing in the back, dropped off the washing, then walked home, got home and saw the car was missing, rushed inside to ring the police because someone had stolen it. And then mum says, didn't you take the car? Oh, yeah, I did. It's great fun we have with him. But Peter, Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, tells us that that's why sometimes Christians refuse to forgive. It's forgetfulness. Listen to these words. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then this is the key verse. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. It is possible, like me, to forget the mercy that we have been shown by Jesus Christ to become nearsighted and blind. And sometimes, like today, we need to be reminded of the mercy shown to us. And 
if we are truly saved, if the Holy Spirit is truly at work in our lives, when this reminder comes, we can no longer refuse to forgive. Paul, Paul's words in verse 13 of our Colossians passage hit with new force. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is hard to hear, but it's the truth, I believe, from Jesus' teaching. If we have unforgiveness in our hearts towards a brother or sister in Christ this morning, then from what Jesus taught us, it can mean only one of two things. Either we have never known true repentance and forgiveness of sin. In other words, either we're not saved or we have forgotten. We have forgotten what Christ did for us. Those are the only two reasons that unforgiveness could continue in the heart of a Christian. There's no other way. It can stay there with the Holy Spirit living in our lives. So in conclusion, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? I encourage you to look into the mirror of your relationships with your church family here at Abbey Church. If you see in the reflection unforgiveness or an unwillingness to bear with those you struggle with so that you have written them off, then Paul says it's time to get changed. Thank you for listening.